Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. Welcome to the back of the range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 102. Well, the fall season of collegiate golf has come to an end. LPGA Q Series is complete. Corn Ferry Tour second stage is underway. And, oh yeah, the President's Cup is still coming up later this year. But other than that, not much going on in the golf world. We have quite a few Mojo updates, a lot of them. Really cool to see some of the guests that I've interviewed as amateurs making their successful jump to the professional tours. Haley Moore ran through the entire LPGA Q Series and survived the eight-round final at Pinehurst to capture her LPGA Tour card. Chandler Phillips from Texas A&M, he got through second stage of Corn Ferry Tour Q School in Texas. Quade Cummins and the Oklahoma Sooners captured the team championship at the Ka'anapali Collegiate Classic by shooting the lowest team round in program history on the final day, 21 under par as a team in one round. Good luck to whoever's going to face them in the spring. Also, good luck to a few of the Walker Cuppers from this year. Akshay Batia is currently in Brooksville, Florida at the second stage of Corn Ferry Torque U School, and Cole Hammer and Andy Ogletree are going to represent the U.S. one more time at the 2019 Spirit International Amateur Championships. So I'm mentioning all these great players because you're going to see them on the big stage very soon. So get to know them now here at the back of the range. We've got a big episode, so I want to jump in pretty quickly here. Remember to keep leaving reviews in Apple Podcasts. Put a screenshot up on your social media channels, and I will hook you up with some free swag. You know we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All that information is at thebackoftherange.com. If you want to buy some merch, the links are in there as well. Every episode is available in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, on to this week's episode. Skip Berkmeyer from St. Louis, Missouri. There's an elite group of mid-amateurs in this country, and you've likely heard their names well before they've appeared as guests on the back of the range. McCoy, Holtgreef, Elliot, Lutz, Parziali. Well, Skip's on this list, even though he'd never say it himself. In fact, you'll hear Skip talk about just about every great amateur around on this episode, but never really mention his name in the same sentence. So Skip... I'm sure you're listening right now, and I know you're going to cringe a little bit when I mention your accomplishments, but it needs to be done. Skip is a three-time Missouri Amateur Champion, a four-time Missouri Amateur Player of the Year, and a three-time Missouri Mid-Amateur Champion. He's played in, shall I say, more than a few USGA championships. Don't worry, the exact number will be revealed later in this episode. This episode was recorded before the U.S. Amateur earlier this summer, and Skip and I talked about his playing career, but also the state of the amateur game. Reinstated amateurs, mid-ams on the Walker Cup team, should the Champions Tour get younger, how to balance work, life, kids, and everything else that gets thrown at us weekend guys while still trying to keep the game sharp. Chatted about a lot of topics. You'd think that Skip knows a little something about talking about golf on the radio. Well, he does. We discussed the golf radio show that he's been a part of for over 20 years in the St. Louis area. So before I give all the details away, why don't we just get this episode started? Is it okay calling you a Missouri golf legend or are you too young for that? I mean, I think legend is your dead. 
Maybe yeah. living legend. Living I, I, I mean, le- oh, I love it. Oh, okay, good. We got confidence on this episode. I love it. Living legend Skip Berkmeyer this week. Skip, welcome. But I don't to the- think that's a good. I don't like the title, living legend. <laughs> but 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 I, I'm saying that that would be better than legend. Let's just put it that way. Living accomplished golfer Skip Berkmeyer <laughs> joins us this week. Skip, welcome to the back of the range. How are you? Well, I appreciate you having me, uh, Ben, and it's uh, it's good to talk to you. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. Well, we've been trying to do it for a while. Uh, I think I'll take most of the blame on this, but I'm glad we're able to get it done. This is kind of coming off a an incredible accomplishment. Well, not incredible. You're a living legend. We've discussed this. But, you know, coming off of, of qualifying yet again for another U.S. Amateur, another USGA uh, appearance coming your way this summer, just in a few weeks coming up at Pinehurst in August. So let's kind of jump into what I love doing when introducing guests that have multiple USGA appearances on their resume. It really connects you with the everyman golfer and puts things in perspective. How many USGAs roughly have you, uh, have you played in? Which one will this be? I think this is, by my count, two different counts because I, I, uh, I made two teams for the United States the golf association when they had the state team, when it was it's now rest in peace. It's, it's now, it's now gone, yeah. which is not, I'm, I'm not a fan of, but I, so I, I count, I think 34, I think, but I think it's by USGA count is 32. Cause I didn't actually play in two of those uh, state teams that I made. So I, I believe that's it. It's over 30. I'm getting older. It's harder to remember. I can't remember to take out the trash. <laughs> so to remember that, is, is sometimes tough. I'd have to put pen to paper, but uh, I have too uh, too much on the plate to, to, to do that. Okay, so you mentioned too much on the plate. I, w- I kind of want to jump into, th- this is something I was going to jump into later, but this is a perfect segue into, you know, getting uh, people an idea. So you, you're balancing, you know, what we all balance, the work-life balance, you got the wife and you got the kid and you got, you got the job and everything like that. So maybe can you, explain what like a typical week look looks like for you, whether it's work responsibilities, you know, what you do for a living. And then also during tournament season or when you're prepping to play in tournaments, how do you kind of balance everything so that you can put yourself in a good spot to compete uh, at a national level? That's a, that's a great question. And that's a, that's a loaded question. Of course. Well, first of all, I mean, I, I have my own business. Um, I have a, a awards business here in St. Louis. It's called all-star trophy. Uh, my dad started in 1971, and and it's basically it's I'm an only child, so that might explain a lot of weirdness and quirkiness of me. But I am we, too, so we're we're kindred spirits on that. So that, and and I don't need anything to explain my weirdness, but you know, basically I, I have a uh, this is this business, and we have about eight to nine employees. And my dad was luck, I was lucky enough that he wanted me to come into the business, so it's it's now mine and my wife's, and uh, and it's remained in our family and. Fortunately, I have a lot of good employees can help me uh, create a life that's not just all about the job. Sure. And so it, it enables me to, you know, go out to lunch and hit balls, sneak to hit an hour and then come back. Or it enables me to pick up the kids from school or take the kids to school it, it, and, and to do all that stuff and try to wiggle in golf. And fortunately for me, my wife is extremely supportive and my my kids are as well, and my wife teaches school, so we're able to financially figure it all out, as well as the business is able to continue to run. So it's it's not a there's no really consistent week of when I play or when I don't or how it's all going to work, but it's it, it just every week is kind of a new little adventure. 
just like just qualifying for the United States Amateur, you know, you got to you got to start maneuvering things around schedule wise, and it's not only your own schedule, work schedule, it's your kids' schedule, it's your wife's schedule. Oh yeah. So it's just there's just a lot, and my parents and babysitters, it's a, it's a, it's it's just a lot of things going on. It's a lot of fun, but uh, I mean, you can't do it. I mean, golf is the ultimate individual sport, but I feel like I have a team of people around me that help me be me. And if I didn't have that, there's no way a mid-am golf life can work. And I think no matter who you have as a guest or who they're, what they're doing, um, to whichever realm of practicing or how they're doing their life, they need help. And I, I certainly have it. Yeah, you know, the, the thing that you bring out these great points about uh, it taking a, taking a village, so to speak, to, to keep the, the, the career, the, the mid-am life going um, – you know, the, the thing that I, I kind of wanted to ask is, and this may be just something personal on my side, you know, I've been out hitting balls, I've been out practicing, and I feel like, ah, I really should be doing something else. I maybe should be at home doing this, or I should be working on this instead. I'm sure that I'm not the only one that feels that, but do you feel sometimes a little bit of the guilt when you're working on your game? And how do you push through that? Oh yeah. I think it's a, it's, I feel like you want to, it's like when I'm in a tournament, you want to be at the tournament, you want to compete, but at the same time you want to be at home. It's like you want to be at two places at once or three places at once at all times. It's, it's, it's difficult. You know, you feel like you're being successful and trying to do something that you're doing at a high skill level here, but yet you're letting other people down to be able to do that. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a continual battle. Yeah. And and fortunately, from a family perspective, I, my, my parents, my, uh, I come from a golf family. My, my wife, uh, you know, is a, it played, played at Mizzou. So she understands and they understand the golf thing. And that, that's very, very lucky on my end from a family perspective. While I still feel the guilt, yeah. it's still, it's, it's more understood of what's going on, and which is appreciated. Uh, work is, it's kind of been the deal since I've been here. So I think they're kind of used to it. Okay. But, but at the same time, there's, you're, you're absolutely right. It, it doesn't, it doesn't change. It, it, it doesn't. You still, I'm human, just like everyone else. And you, you, you run into things like that. And particularly in amateur golf, or when you have some of these tournaments that are, you know, they go a long time. Um, and but you're trying to travel correctly. You're trying to get in there as quick as you can to play a practice round. You're trying to limit your days as much as you can, or at least I do. And um, but it's it's very very hard. How do you maximize the limited amount of time you have to work on your game? If you had to, if you got one hour. What are you? What are you specifically working on? I know it probably changes if you have issues with your swing or if you have problem problems putting. But for a strictly one hour maintenance practice session, just to keep everything kind of sharp, what are the things that you really try and focus on to just get the most out of that sixty minute maybe lunch break, so to speak? Well, I'm 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 kind of known. I'm I'm a little different than most. I I I love to hit balls. So I I mean I like to hit balls frequently. So I like to hit them. I don't need to hit them like two hours long, but I like to hit almost every day if I can, Okay, you know, I'll go for 25 minutes and hit 20 balls. If I have to, I mean, I'll just do whatever I can to try to hit in my mind. I'd rather do more frequent in small doses than do the huge practice session, you know, once every, every once in a while. So the other thing I I, I like to have are eyes on it. So, um, I've got a, a buddy, you know, some, some buddies here that have helped me throughout the, uh, throughout the years with my golf swing that have watched me hit it. I've got video from the past that when I can try to, I'm trying to make sure that it doesn't get out of control. I think golfers, we exaggerate feelings to, 
to help our game. And we get, we were looking for that feeling. And sometimes you take that feeling too far. So I'm always trying to do, I would call maintenance to make sure that I'm not taking it too far. So there's, there's, there's those eyes that help. There's certainly video that I can send to like John Tattersall, who's a, who's a friend and a teacher in, in, in Atlanta that I, that I've sent stuff to and who helps me. So I'm always trying to figure out a way to keep the maintenance high and to create new feelings to make sure that I don't go too far one way or another. I'm pretty athletic. So, you know, when you tell me that, you know, you need to swing out to the right, for instance, I'll swing so far out to the right that it would be ridiculous. Yeah. So that's kind of, I'm always trying to balance that kind of stuff. And I I do think uh, short game stuff and when, to me, if you, the best technique you have, the less you have to maintain. So if you have an unusual move, you really have to work on it to make sure. So if I think if my technique's good, I don't have to practice as much. So Okay, so that's a great tip for people listening. Uh, the more attention that you're – so you feel that the more attention that you pay to the fundamentals keeps things kind of on the right track longer without as much work or as much – I do. Yeah, yeah, okay. I do. I think, I think if, you know, I, I, I remember listening and was in a short game clinic with Stan Utley and Stan Utley was talking about those same principles of having good technique that you don't have to worry about excessive practice because that technique is going to be reliable all the time because it's a good technique or good habits. It's the problem when you have a unusual grip or an unusual style of doing things. Certainly you can, we've seen the history of golf. We've seen hall of famers do things that are weird but if you have, to me, sound fundamentals and technique, it's a lot easier to repeat under pressure. Because if you're nervous under pressure, really, really nervous, where you're, like, scared, you probably have a good reason that you are right, scared. Yeah, Because you're probably not either practiced with it or you know down deep in your heart that it's, it's going to be hard to replicate. Yeah, that's, that's excellent points. I, I want to talk a little bit about some of your successes and some of maybe the, the close calls you've had in these USGA qualifiers. You've, you've, as you said, you've played in over 30 you know, made sectionals for the U.S. Open several times. But uh, before we do that, you, you you mentioned, I just want to hit on this. You mentioned you come from a golfing family. And I think you're underselling that just a little bit. So I, I, I know a little bit about your mother's achievements in golf. And I also know a little bit about your wife's achievement in golf. So let's talk about mom first. First USGA championship she played in was, I believe, 1969. She's a senior. Yes, I think that sounds right. Yeah, she's a senior women's, uh, a USGA senior women's amateur finalist in 2002. And then my favorite stat is nine consecutive Missouri senior amateur championships starting in the year 2000. So she's she's remarkable. Yeah. So how did you get introduced to the game? What was golf like for you growing up as a child? No, I, I well before I get to that, I, I have one other stat that I always like to brag about my mom. She was the she was the first woman to ever get an athletic scholarship, I believe, to the University of Missouri. Wow! So, and she was a curator for the University of Missouri. Very proud Missouri Tiger, and I, I she, she's remarkable. And in that final that she lost, she lost to a golf hall of famer in Carol Simple Thompson in the final. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. so she, she does have a, just a historic career and is, is she's truly legendary around here as far as the game of golf and a five-time state champion. But no, I got introduced to the game. She, she, her, her father was a professional and a superintendent in Iowa and was around like Fort Madison and a Tumwa 
and then worked their way down to Kirksville in Missouri and then came to St. Louis to a club here called Algonquin Golf Club. And so her was a, was a professional. So she got introduced that way. And then I got introduced basically being, you know, you understand you're an only child. I was an only child. So when my parents went to the course, I went to the course. When my parents went on a golf trip, I went on the golf trip. So they, they had a hard time actually having me as a child. And so my, my parents, I think, felt I was going to be the only one that they were going to enjoy or try to fit every moment with it. So I became kind of a country club brat, if you will, at uh, Norwood Hills Country Club here to where in the summer I played all other sports. I played football, basketball, and was pretty good at them. But golf was a summer kind of activity that I did with my parents. And, and certainly it, it's not an easy thing to teach your kid how to play golf, but they did that. And they, they instilled it. And we, we went through the the, the tough times because it's not an easy thing to do as I have a, of a child to try to teach, yeah. but we fantastic. So happy that we did. And, and, and really, I think they always knew down deep that I would be pretty good. And then once I dropped the other sports, when I went to college, that's when it kind of happened, but that's kind of the, the mini version of how it happened. Well, and then, you know, that, that's your, your upbringing. And <laughs> I, I got to hear the story, you know, your wife, <laughs> your wife's won a handful of state amateur championships as well. So I'm fascinated on that dynamic of, you know, there's the guys that maybe have to, you know, talk to the wife about, Hey, you know, the boys and I, we want to go play golf this weekend. You know, can I get out to go play golf? Um, and then there's probably a completely, I mean, I don't even know what that dynamics life where, where you and your wife are both Missouri state amateur champions. So if you don't mind me asking, how'd you meet your wife? Well, she's she's five years younger, which she likes me to talk about than, than, than me. So I'm, I'm 45, so she just turned 40. And, and um, so she we actually won. She won in 1998 and 1999 her two-state championships. I was a finalist in 98, and I won in 99. And we didn't even know each other at the time Okay, here in, here in the state of Missouri. She graduated uh, in 2001 from Missouri. And uh, she worked, started working as an intern for the Metropolitan Amateur Golf Association here in St. Louis. So I think she was looking kind of as she was looking to do what, what, what she wanted to do with her life at that point. And she, her parents had moved from Oklahoma here to St. Louis. So they were here in our in our city. And so basically she went to work for Tom O'Toole, who became the future USGA president. Of course. Long, that's, a, that's, a, that's a whole deal. <laughs> but, but anyway, Jamie and I, I basically – we, we started to become friendly because I do the awards for the Metropolitan Amateur Golf Association. Yeah. So I would deliver stuff. I would bring stuff. I was always in communication and I was playing in those, a lot of those events in USGA qualifiers. So we met basically she asked me out to a date to go to a baseball game, which is a, a very common thing to do to hear St. Louis is go to a St. Louis Cardinal baseball game. Yeah. So we went on a date and the rest is, is, the rest is, is, is history. history, I guess we, you know, and we, we, we started dating and, playing golf and there's some parallels to my mom having a great career i don't know i don't know that that could be a whole psychological discussion <laughs> i'm not qualified for that kind of i just talk and golf i'm not that. either hey, i can't but, i can't help you with but, that um, it, but she she is you know as, as that similarity is they're, they're different in so many ways but 
but Jamie is a great player in her own right. She doesn't really like to play that much anymore. I, you know, she kind of has done the opposite. She'll tell you that someone has to be the grown up in the relationship. That you're, <laughs> I'm off playing and she's not. But it, it's, uh, you know, women's amateur golf's a lot different than men's amateur golf, and I think she, that's a whole show on that on that realm. Yeah, that seems but, to be the one. Uh, that seems to be the one segment of amateur golf. The women's mid-am segment, I think, is is probably. I guess that's the segment that's really kind of lacking in participation. If you had to compare it to all of them, there, there, there's no doubt it's it's different. Yeah, uh, and and whereas guys seemingly want to keep doing it and want to, it's it's just different on that level. And and, and I don't, I really don't know why, but it but it is. And so she doesn't play a whole lot, but we do play some. We like playing on vacations and stuff. And you know, she's she's still a really good player when she wants to. I, I think for us going forward in our life, when our kids grow up. Um, and you know they they leave the house and we have I think we'll play more in our future than we do currently now, sure. um, and I think that's something that we both look forward to have happening in our lives. No, that's uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, that I can't. There have to be some really great stories about you two just going at it together on the golf course where you know no one wants to give or budge. I would assume that uh, she's just as competitive as you are when when she's on the golf course. It's 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 it, in fairness to her, it's not really a fair fight at the because she doesn't play as much. But when we, we first started playing uh, back a long time ago, believe me, I knew what the score was, and she knew what the score was. And there were times when I, I guarantee you, whether she wanted to beat me or I wanted to beat her or make sure she didn't beat me, sure, absolutely, there 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 is that element to it. But it, it it's really. I think at a pretty darn good level, Ben, and I think it's something, you know, golf is so internal and it's about what you're doing. I don't, I, you know, certainly we know, but it's, it's, it's not something that we really broadcast, but I will say the only story I can give you on that is if she won two, she had two state amateurs and I only had one when we first met back in um, 2001. Yeah. And so I, I won again in 2009 and, and she kind of, she gave me a hug and congratulated me. She just, Oh, you finally caught me. <laughs> so, so two years later in 2011, I win and she, she gives me a hug and congratulates me on the green. And I said, I finally passed you. Oh. So there, there is, there is some of that, but, but that's, that's, that's kind of how the relationship is, but it's certainly not, it's all in fun. Yeah. Well, he sounds like that night you had a very comfortable couch to, uh, to sleep on. So no, I'm just kidding. So, so, um, all right, so I want to, there's tons of topics that we're going to be able to get to. I want to hit on just a couple of them here. But, you know, sure. as, as I said, USGA's uh, over 30. Um, you've tried for the U.S. Open, I think, what, at least 20 times? Does that sound about right? Yeah, I gave it up about four years ago, four or five years ago. I made six straight sectionals, and I, I just got tired of getting my butt beat at, at Memphis. You know, it was one of those good conversations that we had earlier about, all right, why am I here? Right for this small portion when my I'm missing a swim meet or I'm missing that. I play in other events. Don't, I mean, the other events are way more fun and it's a better experience. Why am I putting myself through this just for a 36 holes in Memphis or whatever? I think when the USGA changed their qualifying sort of system, meaning they, they took away a lot of sectional qualifiers from around the country and they made more super sectionals, if you will. Um, you know, they used to have six, 16 or 15 or 16 of them. Now they're down to like 10 or whatever. And they made it more international. It kind of changed my perspective on that event because I couldn't, you know, I can compete with them on courses I know, but going to another place and more mini tour, it wasn't going to work. So the chances that I had, I, I missed by two twice getting to an open 
but they were they were once in Kansas City and one was in St. Louis, so there was a different chance, and it was more of an open. You know, you're playing more against section professionals or just one tour pro, not multiple guys. So that 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 changed. That's why I quit doing that. What um, you mentioned, you were close twice. You mentioned you were close twice to getting in. I think there was about a couple shots. Um, I guess fond memories of maybe certain pairings that stuck out, whether for better or for worse, whether you're you're paired with someone that that clearly is just above and beyond. Just you could see this is going to be a future star. I mean, you've said you've you've made six straight sectionals. You've you've done it uh, at least uh, about 15, 17 times, I guess, that you've, you've tried to do it. I, I'm guessing you have tons of stories, but is there any one that really sticks out of like a sectional or even a local qualifier that you'll never forget for better or for worse? Well, in qualifying, I, I gotta, I, I mean, I, I played, I mean, I played with Robert Garrigus, uh, Robbie Shelton. I, when I saw him, he was in Alabama. I thought he's going to be really good. Yeah. He is really good. He's coming into his own now. I mean, I have more stories around that realm, around amateur golf that I got to play with. And that's the, that would be more the, as far as, you know, I got to play with Billy Horschel and Gary Woodland and Harris English and, you know, uh, in terms of Charles Howell and Dustin Johnson. And, you know, uh, those guys, when you play with them, I've had more of a, more of that kind of stuff, right? like the Porter cup or amateur golf, but qualifying, I, I don't really seem to recall. I never got like the Adam Scott pairing or I never got like, you know, right. playing with someone that, that that's a little bit unusual, if you will, that, that shouldn't be in the qualifier to begin with, but they happen to slip in. I, I missed twice and they were local and, and they were, they were chances. And I felt like the one I, I should have made, I, I putted horribly and, and, and still could have made it. So anyway, I, that, I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I, I didn't, as far as a USGA deal, I never really had any, um, I would call famous. I mean, I just played with Scott Fawcett at the, at, the, at the U.S. Amateur qualifier for a day at the, the, the Decade Golf Guy, which was which was unusual and interesting at the U.S. Amateur local. But that's that's as far as weird I can I can kind of tell you at this point. So the U.S. Amateur qualifier that that you just got through. So you're you're 45. You just get through. You got through last year. You're at Pebble Beach, and then obviously this year you're, you're at Pinehurst. I'm guessing since, I mean, you've been trying that for, you've been doing U.S. Amateur qualifiers for quite a long time, and you're probably more qualified to speak to the change in the amateur game and who you're running across in the last 15, 20 years that you've been doing this or even longer. Is it that the younger players, like it's said on TV and like other people throw in the idea that they're bigger and they're stronger, does does it necessarily mean that that makes them a lot better? Or is it just that they are able to overpower golf courses more so than perhaps in years past? Well, I, I think that's a, I, I, in my mind, you know, I've been doing this, I, my first year of Sam was in 1995 and now, you know, so it's, it's, there's a big span of, you know, I was with, I was at Newport when Tiger won and, and now we're here. I just think there's just the, with the equipment and with the modern technology and with instruction and, and all things that they have gone on, they're just better athletes and better now than they ever have been. And there's just more of them. And I, I think that the the difference between a mid-amateur player and, and the collegiate amateur, elite collegiate amateur player, top 100 in the world, whatever you want to say, the, the difference is just so much so much greater than it used to be. I used to feel like you know, even, even in 2006 and 2005 and 2004, when I was playing more out there uh, against an, an amateur golf, that I had chances on certain conditions. There was, there was more of a chance that there was a greater percentage of my success 
in 2006, I finished second at the Porter Cup in the final group. I was with Gary Woodland. And I got a little bit of what what what, what was to come, I think, right. in, in not only amateur golf but in professional golf, and seeing that athlete unleash it, and you know, doing things things that I've never seen before, and that's just more the commonplace now. So I just think there's just a big gap there that there that there wasn't before, a bigger gap, and they're just really talented. I mean, I think they the, the, the equipment's better, they're in better shape, they know exactly what they're doing with their golf swings better, they they don't hit it. Out, out of play near as much. They now know how to play golf more because of things like, you know, like I was just talking about with decade golf, or they, they know how to play more. Where the, so the advantage or the thoughts of how I can compete are kind of getting pushed aside more and more. You know, I think there were four mid ams last year that made the cut at the U.S. Amateur. I mean, one Stuart Hagestad who's on its own planet of a mid am. Oh yeah. Different than the he's he's different than the rest of us. And then there were three others. Um, it's just it's different i mean garrett rank was one of them so that and he's almost different as well so you know the old guy that that, that sort of has a job and a family it's it's just different i mean i was the oldest to make match play by 15 years last year so that just gives you an idea of 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 what where the sport is and it it you know when you went to the u.s amateur 1995 you probably have 20 mid-ams that may have made the cut 15 to 20 made the cut now you have four so there's a huge difference in the game is getting younger and stronger and, and it, it, it's certainly going that way. What, um, as far as mid amateurs, as far as, you know, people that are, you know, 25, 30 years old, even, you know, in their forties, you've been able to play some of the, the greatest invitationals all around the country, whether it's playing the crumb cup at Pine Valley or playing the Thomas or the Coleman. I mean, that is such an elite and uh, special place that you're able to take advantage of and able to play in. The relationships you build there, who are some of the guys that you just look forward to seeing every single time you go play these tournaments where if you have time, you got to get a beer with that guy and have a conversation with? Well, it, it's it's interesting how it's evolved. It, I still feel so fortunate that, you know, to be able to get invited to these events. I mean, you get, you feel like, I don't know what it's like to get the master's invitation for those guys, the professional, but they get excited when they see it. I, I get excited when you get invited to those places. It's, it's, yeah. it's a lot of fun. And to know that you're still accepted and wanted and, and that, that, you know, because you really, they not only want you to be a good golfer and to have a resume, but they want you to be a good person. And sure. I, I think that's part of it. And I always say that 95% of people in golf are good people. I mean, certainly there are, there are some asses out there, if you will. But I will tell you that most people, their heart and their intentions are in the right place. So when I go to these events, I have really, really enjoyed it. And when you first go, it's really kind of intimidating. Oh, of course. Uh, I mean, it's spooky. Cause it, and it's just you don't know. You don't want to do anything wrong. You don't want to say the, say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. Um, for me, so what I've done and, and I, what I started to do, and, and I've heard you talk to Nick Gillum and, 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 and Patrick Christovich, who's from, from Louisiana. And we, I basically in 2012, I started, I said, you know, let's, let's, I, you know, practice rounds. I, I, nobody likes them. I mean, we like to play them, but it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's different for a minute. Let's, let's get a game. Let's do something. And so what, what they, what they, Nick Gillum likes to give nicknames to everything. So he called it Skippy Bucks. So we started doing practice round games with before the tournament starts. And so now, you know, fast forward six, seven years, we have usually at least three groups, maybe four groups of guys that play the, the, the day before the event starts. So there's Scott Harvey, there's Todd Mitchell, there's my four ball partner, Brad Nursky, there's Nathan Smith, there's 
you know, at all, I, I look at Rob Couture. I mean, all these guys are wonderful guys, and I enjoy the heck out of them. I mean, and, and it's it's a lot of fun. I mean, it, it's great. In fact, I'm leaving for a weekend vacation. I'm going with the Mid-Am from Birmingham, Alabama, Alan Koshad, and his wife. My wife has become, and, and I are friends with them, and we're going to go do something in Vegas for three days. We're going to go see shows and have a good time. So there's just many people in this game that have been so good to me and to have that opportunity to go do stuff and to be around these guys is, is so much fun. I didn't really get it when Jim Oakley, for instance, was doing this in the 80s and 90s. Like, well, why don't you play the stadium here? You're not winning it every year. Why are you going to all these places and traveling all over? Let's play here. Yeah. But you, you really are not only going to play these events, but you're going to see your friends. And I, I, it's it's just fantastic, and, and I, I enjoy it, and I, I really wouldn't want to have it any other way. You mentioned Jim Hulkrieg. He was a previous guest here on the podcast, one of my favorite episodes that I've, I've recorded. Uh, just, you know, two-time Walker Cup captain, played on three Walker Cups, played in five Masters, and just an incredible conversation that I had with him. I know he's a St. Louis guy, just like, you know, you are, or, you know, Missouri Missouri golf legends, uh, so to speak. And <laughs> so let me put you on the spot here. Give me a good Jim Holtgrieve story that maybe I didn't get uh, get out of him or I didn't know to ask him. You know, I didn't. I don't know him well enough, but I, I didn't know to ask him uh, about something. Maybe what's a good Jim Holtgrieve story? Did he talk about with you in the 1979 State Amateur at Wolf Creek with Payne Stewart? No. So that that's the story. Um, so in 19, I, I wasn't there, so I've heard it several different times from different people. I think Payne even reflected upon it in his book or the book about Payne. It was reflected on, I should say. And basically in 1979, Jim had just qualified, I think, in 78. You just did the interview, you would know probably, but I think for Cherry Hills and, and the U.S. Open. Yeah. And it was low. It was not low amateur. I think Bobby Clampett was, but he made the cut and played four days. So, so he was kind of starting to become the, the big thing around the state of Missouri. And, and Payne was, it was at SMU and at the time and uh, was becoming a senior, I think by 1979. And, but Payne had a lot of talent and his dad, Bill Stewart was a legendary golfer, former state champion from Springfield yeah. and a wonderful guy, highly respected in the state. And the, the story goes is they both were at Wolf Creek, which ironically is in Kansas, but it was a Missouri amateur and it, they played and they were going to play each other in the final the next day and they had had run-ins all week because Payne was mad at Jim for pace of play and at the time he was very very brash but from what I understand there was it, it got heated at the and there was almost a little bit of an altercation there were words before the match even started and so when the match started and from the day before and so when the match started on number one at Wolf Creek is a 300 and something par four down the hill Payne Stewart had the honor. He drives the green, and he looks over at Jim and says, catch that fat boy. Oh, wow. So, so yeah, I mean, so later, the, the, the best part of that story isn't the, it, it is that it's, a, it's an interesting story, and there was a lot of heat around that, and Tom O'Toole was the president of the USGA, obviously, here the last, uh, I guess, few years ago, uh, was caddying for Jim at the time. Uh, during that final so it, it, it was interesting how that all came about but the best part is is that all came full circle later in Payne's life when he apologized to Jim for all that and became a Christian and certainly wanted to uh, you know make amends for those things and said he, he did he was wrong by it and they became friends later in life 
And I think, and I, uh, even Tom O'Toole, I believe, in 1999, when he won the United States Open before he passed away, one of the first people that he saw going down the steps was was Tom O'Toole Jr. So, I mean, I, there's a lot of Jim stories, but that one in 1979 where they met in the final is kind of legendary around here. That's a, that's a fantastic story. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I guess that what I, I'm trying to figure out what the ages would have been there because I'm thinking – Let's see, seventy nine. So, so Jim is probably like thirty at the time. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Early thirties, and Payne, and Payne is, uh, you know, twenty one. Yeah, probably. Wow. Yeah. That's... Oh, yeah. It, 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 it. There's always in our in our state. There's a little bit of a of a. You know, we in St. Louis are over here on the East Coast, and there's the rest of the state, and there's always kind of a little friction in, in interstate stuff, and so that that kind of how that all there, there's that going on. We. You know, they think we, we say I'm from St. Louis. I don't say I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. That's what they say. I say I don't. But I, there's kind of that little vibe going on here, little competitive juices. And, you know, I, I it's all from the past anyway. It's not sure. anymore. But that, that's kind of how it, when you brought up, that's kind of how it is. It was interesting anyway. Interesting, interesting. You've talked about playing mid-amateur tournaments and traveling. I'm sure that there are several times when you guys all get together it's not just talking about you know catching up with families and talking about your own games i'm sure you guys are talking a lot about the state of the game itself whether it be on the national level or or more locally uh, i'm sure you have have opinions and thoughts on you know topics like uh you know mid amateurs playing at a walker cup or uh, perhaps, like you said, the the fact that the you know the U.S. state team championship has gone away, the U.S. amateur publics has gone away in favor of the U.S. four ball. Do you like where things are for the game for the for the everyday mid am player that's you know got the wife and two point two kids and the and the and the you know the car and the garage and all that stuff and the dog? I mean, where do you feel that the game is at this particular time for the every man that's that's trying to spend more time playing it? Well, that's a we, well, definitely, it's a loaded question. We we definitely have opinions. I mean, golfers always have opinions. I mean, uh, no matter what level, uh, if you've been around country clubs or golf clubs or public golf course, uh, there are somewhere right now there are, there are, there's probably men or women sitting around with a cup of coffee with opinions in, in, in golf. So there are, there are plenty. You know, us us as a, as a group, I think for mid ams to generally answer your question, things are pretty darn are, are pretty are pretty great. I mean, I. I think we have great events. I mean, who, who's going to complain about where, where we go to play? I think it's it's fantastic. Um, I think you know we care about our sport, and we're very very fortunate to to be able to do those things. I think the things that we, I think the hot topic issues that we talk about the most are, I guess, for me. I think pace of play is always talked about from the USGA perspective. We talk about reinstatement i think is, a, is another topic that's always talked about from professional to amateur golf is a, is, a, is a hot button topic issue you know the new rules this year have been kind of a hot button topic i mean and so i think you know depending on the flavor of the week or, or what we're i think there are always issues to, to discuss and i think there's the great part about mid-ams i think is there's room to disagree and to still be okay with that um and I, I think it all usually surrounds with the United States Golf Association and, and, and what they're doing. And because our, our life or our goals are, are, you know, mid-am golf or try to win the mid-am or to try to 
represent our country or to do those things. And a lot of my friends have, have been able to do that. And, and certainly that's, those are the things that we talk about. I mean, uh, specifically things that lately that we've been talking about that, that would be, I think, clarify if, if, if you want to know that I would think, um, you know, like I, for, for me personally, I like I, my, my opinion, like I hate the three minute ball search on the new, on the new rule. I, yeah. I tweet about that all the time. I can't stand it. I think it's an awful rule. I, I change. Uh, I, I know that the USGA, I've talked about it with them, that they have data that that's that, you know, for instance, on a specific issue that, that you know, you're going to find your golf ball 90 some percent of the time within the first three minutes or it's going to be lost. But I'm not concerned about that. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, concerned about the, whatever percentage, the small percentage that you could find it. And it could be a difference of making a USGA event or not, or making a cut or not, or winning a tournament or not. Sure. Yeah. So that, 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 that would be one. So those are the kind of topics of conversation that we have. And then, and you know, like reinstatement or pace of play. And I mean, the pace of play policy. Yeah. Let me jump in the, yeah, let me jump in the, on reinstatement. You know, you've seen a lot with U.S. Mid-Am Championships, a lot of reinstated uh, amateurs that, you know, these guys have played professionally in the past where it seems like there's less and less spots for the guys that never turned professional or, well, I shouldn't say less spots, but it seems like there's a less of an opportunity for the average every man that has never played professionally to really go deep in that tournament because he's at some point going to run up against a former professional. And whether or not you... I mean, I don't know how you what you do to prevent that. Whether you know, other than really looking at what you have to do to get to be reinstated, there's people that have just it takes a year and they get back. You know, how do we create an environment where you can have a guy that's never played professionally feel that he can compete on the national level? Well, I think I think everyone's for reinstatement. I think they people want people to come back. I think you should have the opportunity to. Sure. I, I I think. I think absolutely. I think our game is better. I mean, I think the USGA would be be horrible if they didn't have that. I mean, we're about inclusion. You want to grow the game of golf, and to exclude a, a segment of people from coming back to playing would be would be horrible. I just think the the issue is is in a lot of ways. Sometimes the United States Golf Association does stuff. They don't. They're not very public about it. I think that they have a, a set of rules or a set of of lists that they follow of how they determine how many years you get off or how many years you can't play or, or however you want to call it or say it. So I'm sure that they do. There's just not public about it. And then where is the point of no return? When, when, how long can you be, how much money can you make? When is that? I mean, these are, these are questions that you don't know because they don't really publish it. They don't talk about it. Yeah. So I think that when you don't do that, that, that provides question and, and suspicion and rumor and what's right or what's wrong. I don't really care what they do as long as they, to me, you have to start at the point where, okay, who, where, where can they never come back? There has to be a point when it's not going to happen. Okay. It's Tiger Woods is not going to come back. Right. Okay. So where is that line? There has to be, where is the line? You know what I'm saying? Let's, let's start there and you work backwards. Right. And I think that is how you try to figure it out. And I just don't think that they're going about it the right way. Um, it's not that, and maybe they are behind closed doors. I don't know. That think that's also part of the problem. So that's, I I'm I'm for it. But I mean, you can't tell me. I mean, I I played in a four ball qualifier last year with uh, Jason Schultz. Jason Schultz is from Missouri. He's, he, he now lives in Texas, and he was on he played professional golf. I think it's about two thousand. And he had to wait five years to get it back. And he's playing, and we're playing together. And and he qualified, and he made a long putt and made it. And, 
and he's a good guy and a friend. I'm happy they went and they played the four ball. And my thought is, is but those skills and the, that knowledge and all that stuff that you accrued all those years doesn't really go away. Of course. It's still there. It's in there. You you were a professional for a long time. So my thoughts are, I think Jason waited five years, which is probably probably was appropriate under the current rules. But is it appropriate? I don't know. These are the, I, and I'm not. And I'm not the one who's saying it should or shouldn't. Right, of course. I just would like to see them to be more defined, if you will. That, that's what I would say. Who are maybe some of the guys that you look up to as established senior amateurs that you're able to see on a year-to-year basis? Um, I'm assuming you're seeing guys like Gene Elliott and Mike McCoy. You know, Absolutely. Midwest guys. I've known Gene and, El- and Mike for a long, long time. I mean, I think Gene Elliott won the Missouri Open when he was a professional. Ironically, I'm talking about that and it, back in the 80s. Here in Columbia, I believe, uh, you know, his name has been around the Midwest. So is so is Mike. I mean, certainly you don't have to look too far when you have people that that, that play the game at a high level. I mean, a, a guy that I really really enjoy that I like that I've gotten to know is Brady Expert, who's from in, in Las Vegas. Yeah. He's one of my favorite people. He's a fantastic player. I know he's won internationally. Um, I just enjoy being around him. And, and and that so I mean there, there there's several I mean Chip Lutz is a great player I mean there, there's just you name it there there's a bunch Sean Knapp is a great friend who's just won the senior amateur in turn 55 here uh, a couple of years ago um, you know we played together like yeah you meant you mentioned Skippy Bucks uh, tell me about your practice round at Pebble Beach with Paul Simpson yes it was great I, I never played with Paul. It was the first time I had played. I'd obviously seen him and been around him, and it was Parsi Alley, Harvey, me, and, and and Paul Simpson. And yeah, I mean, it was it was great. I mean, I, I it it was it was just a lot of fun. So we played and we rotated partners every six holes. Yeah. So I got to be his partner. I mean, speaking of legends, that is that that that's a legend. And we just had a lot of fun. I mean, there was no you, you don't have playing in that deal. There's no thick. Or there's no thin skin. You're going to get it at some point. And we just had a great time. And it was it was a lot of fun. I mean, Matt Parzelli's dad's caddying for him. I got one of my best friends caddying for me. There's just, it's it, you know, you're at Pebble Beach. You're in a great mood. It was just a wonderful day. It was a wonderful morning. I mean, the day before, I played a practice round with uh, with Matt Parzelli, Harvey, and uh, Garrett Rank. And we played Cypress Point. So, I mean, that whole trip Hard to was beat just that. one memory. It was one memorable deal after another. And the next day, I played Spyglass with Sean Knapp, Charlie Waddell, who just qualified for the amateur, a great player from Chicago, and Garrett Rank, a great friend. So, I mean, that's, to me, what golf's all about, is to, is to play with people that you, that you like and you respect and you love. It's, it's awesome. And, and that was, it, I, it was a great trip. And Simpson gets in as a qualifier for that, doesn't he? He did, he didn't have an exemption, did he? I think he did. Oh, he did. I think he had an exemption. I okay. think he had a senior. I think the senior amateur. He was a finalist. Okay. I think. Yep, that's probably it. Okay. Yeah, because that's yeah. awesome for him yeah. to go out there. Because what is he like, sixty-five years old? Yes, and I mean, what a. I mean, so as you're talking about people to look up to, there's no. I mean, how could you not look at him and say there's a great example of somebody that you want to play? you know, that you want to play with or play, play like and be around and learn from. It's, it's just a lot of fun. That's awesome. Um, it's perfect. So uh, people listening are going to say, man, this guy Berkmeyer's kind of got a radio voice. Uh, that's not an accident. You actually 
host or, or I guess co-host a weekly radio show. Looks like it's a, a 550 KTRS, and you are on there with uh, with the Randolphs talking golf every single week. How did you get into that? That's a great, another great question. Um, you know, not 2000 and I, I think 10. There was a they had a there was a competing radio show at the time, and they asked me to come in as a guest, and I came in for the hour. And how I like to say it is I basically just never left. <laughs> um, they, they just kept, they, I just, I never left. And the guy said, let's have coffee. And he said, I want to, I want you to be a part of the show going forward. And I said, well, all right. I said, don't, I don't want to get paid or anything. Just let's just, let me see if you like me for a couple of weeks. And I see if I like you and see if it works. So we did that. And then part of that was Jay Randolph Jr. did the first hour with us. It was kind of unusual. They're doing two different shows, but he was doing the, the morning and, the first part of it. And so I got to know Jay Jr. really well. We were always knew each other, but we got to become pretty darn good friends. And so when that show went by the wayside, Caddyshack here in St. Louis, we now started the Fairways and Greens was still going on. It had been doing it since 1992. So 20, it's now 27 years going. Wow. He was doing it. He started with uh, Jeff Smith, who here in town uh, runs Walters Golf Management at that time was the Gateway PGA section director, executive director. And so they did a show for many, many years. And, and part of my goals growing up was always to get on the show because if I got on that show, then you arrived. I, I did something well, first of all, and I kind of arrived. Yes. And so, and being a mass communications major in college, that was, I, and I did some broadcasting. So I, I understood what radio was and I enjoyed it. So, I, I wanted to get on that show. So ironically, in 2011 or 2012, I started becoming a part of their show. And, and Jeff ended up leaving, and we switched stations. And, and then Jay Sr., who came back in town from being out of town, he used to do games. It was in Florida and did other stuff from around the, around the country. Started living here more permanently and became part of the show again. So I've gotten this great tutelage under Jay Randolph Sr., who – has been a giant in the broadcasting industry, not only locally, but nationally doing football and golf and all sorts of stuff. And then his son junior has been great to me. So for me, it's been just a lot of fun and being able to talk about golf issues and to be able to bring out, you know, local stories that may not be getting covered similar yeah, to what you're doing. Absolutely. You know, I, I don't know if your listenership is going to be going up by the thousands with me, but maybe by, maybe like by, by two with my parents, but I, I will tell you, that <laughs> I got a little bit bigger reach than the Berkmeyer household. I mean, it's not great, but I could still pull a little right, bit outside. Of well, it might go up by two now because of them. But I, I can tell you, I appreciate that. But I, I can say that, um, you know, I, I've just enjoyed doing it with them as, as friends. And so we, we do it once a week on Sunday evenings and kind of recap what's going on. And um, it's, it's a part of the world that's fun for me. So you have, uh, so let's do a little bit of just kind of quick bullet items, bullet, you know, hot topics that you probably discuss uh, on your show. But let me get your quick takes on a couple things, just random. Let's go with this one. Should there be more than one mid-am on a Walker Cup team? Forget about this one, just in general. Should there be, should there be a guaranteed two spots, one spot, three spot for a mid-am for the U.S. Walker Cup team? I would like to see one for sure. And then if there's a qualified second one, yes. Okay. I know it's kind of a hedge answer, but that's what I would tell you. I think there's some years that there really maybe shouldn't be two. Maybe there only should be one. I think this year, particularly to answer your question, there should be two. So um, 
So if that answers your question. Okay. So, so Hagestad's already on the team. Who do you, who would you say if, if you're, if you're on the committee, who's that second minion spot? Going I think to? Max should be there. I think Parziali should be the second one. I do. Okay. I mean, I, I mean, Harvey's playing great, but he hasn't play uh, hasn't played as much locally. I mean, I'd love to see all three of them on. They're all three great friends and they're all very capable and Harvey's playing maybe the best golf he's ever played. Yeah. But I would tell you probably Matt, Matt's chased it. He's been out there playing with the kids. I think if you look at his body of work over the last three years, and you go back even further, I, I would probably say him. Yeah. Tiger Woods, obviously, the needle, the the hot topic, you know, winning the Masters and then kind of not, you know, I guess, yeah, I guess you could say it, being a little bit of a disappointment the rest of the year. Do you see him? What do you see out of Tiger the next two years, two, three years? We talk about Tiger a lot on our radio show and, and, I, I think I've had about every, and you know, this typical sports talk radio or golf talk radio. When you do short bursts of segments, you have opinions, and I, I've probably been all over the place with my opinions on Tiger because it, it changes so frequently. And I, I think the answer is we don't know. I just love the fact that we got to see him win again at the level he did at the Masters, and I'm just hoping that he's not going away. I, I'm suspicious of the lack of playing, like everybody else is, with injuries and stuff. And if he can just somehow, um, I think, find a way to compete, you know, every year, but he's got to be able to show up and play more than he has over the last three or four. Yeah. I, three or four months. Yeah. I've, uh, I've kind of posed early on in the podcast, I would pose a question to a lot of my guests at the very end of the episode. And I would say, um, you know, what would be more substantial victory, uh, Jack in 86 or Tiger potentially winning a fifth green jacket, which we all know is not a potential. It did happen this year. So I'll pose that question to you, Tiger uh, Tiger this year or Jack in 86, which one do you think would go down as the more substantial victory? Wow. I think I think the reason I'm going to say Jack is probably, I don't know if people would be surprised me saying it, I, I think Tiger, we had a glimpse the year before that he could do it. I mean, he almost won two majors, and he won the Tour Championship, and he was playing at a really, really high level going into the event. Jack, in 1986, I, I don't want to discount it, but he was pretty much put off that there's no way he's going to win again, that he was not going to win again. And I, I think he was becoming what they, they what he would hate is almost a ceremonial golfer, yeah, which yeah. we obviously know that he was not going to be. So I, I, I think his out of nowhere, and I have so much respect for him as a person and how he his family and I've gotten fortunate to play with Gary and, and I've just enjoyed that so much. And I just have such a huge respect for him. It's hard for me not to pick Jack for everything, to be honest. I'm biased. No, I, I, I think, uh, I, you know, it's funny when, when Tiger won this year, uh, I, I think everyone was like, okay, here we go again. Here's the push to 18. And then seeing what happened the rest of this year, I start really thinking to myself, I wonder if that if that win is going to get put in the same category of Jack in '86, the last glimpse of greatness. And I, if I had to pick, I think it's leaning more towards that than a continued run. Would never count him out, but I just I have a feeling you're, we're going to see documentaries about that win the way we see documentaries about Jack in '86. Probably. I don't think there's a doubt, and I'll be the first one to watch because it was oh, it yeah. was unbelievable. In fact, I always I said on the radio the other day, I, I it almost ruined the rest of the year in golf. Oh yeah. Oh no, <laughs> I, I the rest of the year didn't seem because the new schedule seemed kind of weird to begin with, and it also honestly it, it it just made every other tournament seem less 
even more less special than the Masters is. It was just that's just the way it was. Well, and yeah, no, you're well, and the three major winners. You're looking at, I mean, you're 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 looking at Kepka winning again at the PGA. Dare I say he may not be the most charismatic major champion that we've seen of recent years. And then first timer of Woodland, which was great. And then first timer, obviously Lowry just just recently in the Open Championship. Yeah, the scheduling is very interesting because I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to get into this WGC in Memphis. And I feel terrible for the for the town of Memphis. But, man, you're looking at that leaderboard and you're seeing a lot of the stars that just it seems like they're pretty flat from coming over from Ireland. So that kind of leads me to another question. Is there too much golf on TV? I think there's a lot of sports in general. There's a lot of stuff. So I I think... As a, I've kind of come to this realization as a golf person that loves to play and loves the, the game of golf and loves to watch golf, is just because it's on doesn't mean you have to watch it. Yeah. I, and I know that sounds crazy, but as a guy who loves the sport and wants to watch it, I, I think I don't want to be trapped into thinking I have to watch it. Sure. Um, and I, I do think there's so much available video of what you can watch whether it's on your phone or whether it's on tv that it can be saturated it's very similar to the nfl football in my mind what all my comparison will be the thursday night game i don't think i've watched one thursday night game i cared about the nfl before they took away the rams so i i don't i don't i don't don't watch i didn't watch the thursday night game when they were here so long story i i think you can just because it's on doesn't mean you have to watch but i do think to keep up, the PGA Tour has to have all these outlets, and they're getting paid. And it's not like those guys that aren't playing aren't getting paid. They're play- getting paid plenty of money. Okay, I like that take. Let me throw another one at you that's been rattling around in my brain for a while. Um, I would love to see more younger guys on the PGA Tour. You know, I think it's going to be really interesting in the next five to ten years where, you know, now we have Matthew Wolf and Morikawa and Hovland and, you know, pretty soon we're going to have the likes of uh, Akshay Batia potentially and Brandon Wu and, and the list goes on and on. The one thing I think is going to be fascinating to look at is what's going to happen to the Champions Tour, because if the big names don't go to the Champions Tour because of the, the draw of how much money there is on the PGA Tour, what about potentially lowering the age of the senior tour to like 47, getting the older guys to that tour quicker to free up more spots for younger guys on the PGA tour. Well, I do think that there's more of a dead period than ever. Yeah. A dead zone, if you will, um, between, uh, and you can for different players is different ages, but you know, between 40 could be 40 and 50 on the PGA tour. I think I saw, you know, whether you're, you know, you're the Jason bone of the world, or if you're the, that's a, you know, a yeah, that, that's a perfect name because I was literally going to just say like you know not every, there's not a lot of Mickelsons and Strickers out there that can compete at that level. A lot of them are the like you said the Jason Bones, the Tim Herons. Yes, that you want that you need that they want need a place to play. But I, at the end of the day, this is this is not a shot at those guys. No, of course, I don't not. know what it does for the PGA Tour champions. Any if they come out early or not, is it going to change? how we watch it is it going to change how the regular golfer watches it i don't know that's the that's the question i i don't i don't think that it would i i, I mean it, it does it change how the pga tour player plays in it? is jim furick now going to play in that and not play in hartford 
I don't know. Yeah. That's I, a great, uh, is Steve Stricker, would he have played earlier on it? You know, if he could have? I, I, it, a lot of it's player-driven that they have to want to be committed to it. I mean, when Lee Trevino came out to the senior tour back in its heyday, he played every week. He oh, wanted yeah. to compete and play. He wanted the money. He wanted to compete. He wanted to create history. He wanted to play against Jack and Arnie and his friends. It's just so much different now, and they're getting to the tour so much earlier now, um, and they're making so much money earlier. I don't know if the you know prestige of playing on that tour, no matter what you do, uh, changes it. So I think you are left with what you have, which is really good golf. And I watched the Senior Open, uh, watched Steve Stricker and Jerry Kelly play, and enjoyed the golf golf experience. But I, I think it's that's what you have is what you're going to have, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I would just love to see some of these younger guys that are really chasing it on the Corn Ferry Tour, or even guys on a Latin America Tour, McKenzie. Man, I'd love to see those guys that really are super. I mean, they are just incredible players fighting for their jobs, fighting for a career. I guess I would find more interest in that and and illuminating a career and a backstory of a younger guy than you know. And again, nothing against the the names we mentioned, but you know, I don't. I guess there may be not enough attention or drama around a guy that's forty two years old that's just you know trying to you know maybe hang on, make a check, make a, you know, make something happen where they've already been on tour for 15, 20 years. Well, and these guys can still play. I mean, of course, of course. Yeah. What Jim Herman just did in, at, at down in Kentucky in that event. I and mean, I think that was one of the best stories of the year. I think he was right I mean, on the PGA tour. I mean, it, it's going to go by the rate, you know, it's going to you know just fly over the radar because of what happened at the British open early in the morning. But I, I think that story and him coming back is fantastic. So I, 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 I think it's great too. I just uh, am looking at, you know, you know, and, and true. And with Herman, if he doesn't have ties to president Trump, I don't know how much we'd really hear much about Jim Herman. Cause that seems to be the story and the, and the line that is attached to him wherever he goes. Well, uh, and, and I think that's unfortunate. Yeah. I, I think that's the, that's the clickbait. Right. No, media. no, of course it's not great. I'm that just saying, yeah, yeah, of course. Well, we only got four more hours to go. How are you doing on time? I'm doing all right. I'm hanging in there. I'm doing all right. I mean, you ask what you want. I'm, I'm good. I know. No, we're gonna. We may need to do another one. I'm gonna close. I'm gonna close this one out because we're already right. at like one twelve. So, Skip, I have a feeling that you uh, that we will need to do this again uh, in the future because there are just way too many topics that we can just unpack and undress and just talk uh, uh, ad nauseum about, but. I'm glad we're able to do this. Uh, Congrats on, again, qualifying for this year's USAM. Hopefully we can catch up after Pinehurst and and go represent the Mid-Am strongly up there, and uh, we'll do it again soon. Well, I appreciate you having me. I really appreciate what you're you're doing here with this podcast. And uh, I'm a fan. Um, I don't know. uh, I hope people enjoy it. Uh, I've enjoyed talking to you, so I guess that's really all that matters. That's all that matters. It's just you and I. There's no, it's just you and I, man. There's no one else listening. Don't worry about it. So I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And there you have it. Special thanks to Skip Berkmeyer for joining us this week here at the back of the range. Don't forget to leave a review in Apple podcast. Go ahead and visit the back of the range.com for more information about the podcast, all of our previous episodes and all the links to our social media channels. We'll see you again next week for another episode here at the Back of the Range.